Our call to confession this morning comes from the book of Job, chapter 9, verses 32 and 33. There we read, for he, that is God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. In these verses, in the midst of his great trial and suffering, uh, Job becomes keenly aware of the distance between himself and God. And it's a distance that's rooted in essence, one that's rooted in different natures. Job confesses that God is not a man like him. He and God are completely different. In fact, God is completely other from Job. God is, as the scriptures declare again and again, holy, holy, holy. And to sinful men such as Job and ourselves, God can be terrifying in his holiness. And so being keenly aware of this distance, this inseparable chasm that exists between God and himself, Job becomes keenly aware of his need for a mediator, becomes keenly aware of his need for an arbiter, one who can lay hands on both Job and God and stand in between. Now, I would argue that confessing, the act of confessing our sins works in part, at least, to remind us of that chasm, that difference, that separation that exists between us as sinners who still struggle with our sinfulness and the holiness and the perfection of God. As we come and we kneel and we confess our sins, we are reminded again and again that God is not like us. No matter how often we want to change the equation and make God in our image, that is not biblically how it is. We are made in his image, and yet God is totally other. He is holy. He is separate. He is not man. And so we become reminded of our need for an arbiter, our need for a mediator as we stand before the Lord and we confess our sins, our need for one who can lay a hand both on us and on God himself. And in confessing our sins, we are graciously reminded that God has provided a mediator. God has provided the arbiter that Job longed for in the man, Jesus Christ. The God-man who is, who is, as the scripture says, the one mediator between God and man. And so as we come to confess our sins, let us be reminded of that reality. Let us take a moment as we confess our sins to sit under the, the weight of God's holy perfection. Let us take a moment, even in confessing our sins, to tremble before the holiness of our God, to feel the keenness of that difference that Job experienced in the depth of his trials and difficulty. And then as we do, let us rejoice in remembering that God has come to us. God has provided that mediator. God has provided that arbiter. God has come and he has rescued us from our sins. We're going to be looking at Genesis 35 and 36 this morning. And so I want to invite you to turn there in your Bible. And as you are, uh, I want to go ahead and just get this out of the way up front. Uh, the majority of our attention is going to be given to Genesis 35. Genesis 36 is a genealogy. And if you thought I was going to stand up here and work my way through all those names in front of you, you're crazy. I'm not going to do that. You can do that at home on your own. Genesis, the book of Genesis, is really dominated by three major stories outside of creation and the story of Noah. That's the three major narratives of Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. 
And we're at a transition point here as we get to Genesis 35 and 36. We are coming to the end of the Jacob narrative and we are moving into the Joseph narrative. And Moses does this uh, through uh, chapter 35 and 36, 36 being this genealogy that traces out the lineage of Edom, uh, the lineage of of Esau, which is Edom, which is a neighbor of Israel, a nation which they have constant interaction with, whether good or bad, ultimately God speaking judgment upon the nation of Edom later in the Minor Prophets. Uh, and so Genesis 36 traces out the lineage of that, that family, uh, that, that neighbor of Israel, it gives him a context. It also ties back into the Abrahamic promises where God promised to make uh, nations and kings and peoples uh, come forth from Abraham. And we saw this again where, going back to the Abrahamic narrative, we had the genealogy of Ishmael. And Ishmael being a uh, son of Abraham and uh, the peoples, the nations that came out of Ishmael. And so Genesis 36, I would encourage you to read that at home on your own and, uh, and, and be encouraged by that genealogy. But we're going to focus the majority of our attention on Genesis 35 this morning. And we are going to read this chapter in its entirety. So if you have your Bible open, would you follow along with me? Hear the word of the Lord. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the, th the place El Bethel, El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give uh, the, off the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Epaphrath, Rachel went into labor and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And her soul was departing, for she was dying. She called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Epaphra, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. When Israel lived in the land, Reuben went, in, went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob 
who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that you speak, that you do not leave us uh, in darkness, that you do not leave us wandering and searching and seeking, but you come and you speak and you declare truth and you call us to yourself in Christ Jesus. And so we pray this morning as we look at your word, we pray that you would be glorified. We pray that Christ would be exalted in our midst. We pray that we would be encouraged and edified by your word. And Lord, I do pray that you would guard my mouth, that I would say only that which is edifying for us, your people, Lord, that you uh, would increase and I would decrease. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we've been going through Genesis for a while, <coughs> and uh, the other day I was at work uh, in the office, a place that I tried to uh, infrequently frequent, and um, some of my coworkers were beginning to ridicule me, uh, some who have actually been here and preached, and, and they were ridiculing me because of my uh, severe lack of creativity uh, when it comes to titles for sermons. And they were looking at some of my past titles, and they were mocking me. Uh, and they were like, uh, you know, look at a sermon I preached a little while ago, and they called, they said, you titled this sermon Jacob and Esau. And I said, well, that's what it was about. It was about Jacob and Esau. And then they sat there, and they just started to kind of, like, uh, brainstorm much more creative titles for my sermons. And I thought, why do you need a creative title for a sermon? It just seems out of place and unnecessary. I hate making titles for my sermons altogether. I despise it. And then I told them what I was going to be preaching on today, and they looked at me and said, oh, what are you going to call this one, The End? And I was like, that's a brilliant title. I, I love it. Let's, let's run with it. And then they began to mock me even more so. <laughs> but the truth is, is that just like Jacob and Esau was, was really an appropriate title, right, for a sermon about Jacob and Esau, uh, the end, or I think I titled this one, The End of an Era, I tried to get creative there, uh, is really an appropriate title, right? Here in, in Genesis 35 and again in 36, uh, the, the Genesis is, is wrapping up uh, this, this Jacob narrative. Uh, and and he's, he's doing it uh, just like he wrapped up the Abrahamic narrative earlier, and he's doing it to transition us into the Joseph narrative that's going to dominate chapters 37 through the rest of Genesis. And like I said earlier, outside of creation and the flood narrative, those three stories, those three narratives really dominate uh, the, 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 uh, the book of Genesis, the, the story of Abraham, the story of Jacob, and then the story of Joseph. And just as we saw the Abrahamic narrative brought to a nice conclusion in Genesis 5, 25, now the Jacob narrative is brought to a neat conclusion. Now that doesn't mean Jacob doesn't show up later. Spoiler alert, he does, right? He is, shows up later in the book. In fact, as we listen to Genesis 35, it ends with the death of Isaac, not with the death of Jacob, right? But Isaac, we said as we even went into the Isaac portion of Genesis, he's just a, a, a blip, right? A, a blip on the radar. He shows up for just a little bit, and he's kind of like this bridge getting us from Abraham uh, over to Jacob. But Jacob will show up later, but really the focus on Jacob's narrative and Jacob's story is done. Now, as we look at Genesis 35, uh, if you're reading along, if you were following along, uh, it, it almost kind of seems like Genesis 35 is, is just kind of like spaghetti thrown down on a plate. But it's just, it's just a bunch of what seems to be like random stories, random facts, random ideas just kind of thrown together here in Genesis 35 to kind of bring to an end this story of Jacob. But the reality is Genesis 35 is not 
uh, spaghetti thrown down on a plate, but has much connection, right? Much points of connection to what's already taken place and really serves to neatly tie off the story of Jacob in Genesis. And so what I want to do this morning, uh, again, having already talked about Genesis 36, is kind of just move rather quickly through Genesis 35. Arnie took a long time this morning with his good, good, good announcements, so he's chewing up my time. So I kind of want to move kind of quickly through Genesis 35, and then I want to come back really for, for application and, and to let this text sit on us. I want to come back to the first four verses where, where God calls Jacob to go to Bethel, and, and I want to spend some time just looking at those verses and, and understanding um, really this, this, this need to know God uh, the true, the one living God, and, and the need to respond to him rightly. Uh, I find the way that God speaks to Jacob in the first four verses to be really interesting as he uh, uh, kind of takes pains to, to fully identify himself within Jacob's story. Uh, and then uh, the way that Jacob responds to this call is extremely important for us as we think about what is it to know God and to worship God. So let's work through the chapter together uh, just briefly. As we think about Genesis 35, the first thing we want to do is we want to set it in context, right? We don't want to see Genesis 35 separated from the events of Genesis 34. Now, if we look at 35, verse 5 doesn't let us do that, right? Verse 5 of Genesis 35 doesn't let us stray too far from the events of chapter 34. And if we remember what happened in 34, uh, Dinah, <coughs> the daughter of Jacob, more specifically the daughter of Jacob born to him from Leah, was defiled. Uh, by Shechem, and in response to this, right, in response to Jacob's lack of action, uh, his two sons, two of his sons, Simeon and Levi, uh, deceive the whole city and then kill all the men in the city and basically um, sack the city. Uh, and, and, and it's not just Simeon and Levi involved in the sacking of the town. Uh, we get the impression from the text of Genesis 34 that, that the other sons join in the sacking of Shechem and uh, essentially take all the booty for themselves, whether that's women, children, herds, flocks, gold, precious things. They take them for themselves. In response to this, Jacob uh, begins to freak out. All right, Jacob looks and he goes, you know what? You've made me kind of odious to the people of the land. Now the Canaanites are going to gather themselves. They're going to come and they're going to destroy me and all that I have. Really, as we said, as we looked at Genesis 34, uh, kind of a lack of faith response on the part of Jacob. Again, I can't stress this enough. As we look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these are complex characters. They are people right? They are people like you and I. We, we know what it is to be people who struggle with sin. As we look at our own lives, if we took any point in our lives, we can find great highs where we're trusting in the Lord and we're walking in obedience and we're faithful and we can find great lows where our faith is weak, where our trust is low, where our, our faithfulness is even waxing and waning as it, as it shouldn't, all right? So these are, these are complex people. And, and Jacob shows that as he has this lack of faith. And so knowing that, kind of thinking about that, Jacob's fear at the retaliation of the Canaanites, it, it puts this call of God in Genesis 35 verse 1 kind of in its proper relief, right? So J Jacob, what he probably wants to do, uh, if you've played Oregon Trail, he wants to kind of like circle the wagons, hunker down, and stay put, right? Because you're never more vulnerable than when you're traveling, especially if you're traveling with women and children and flocks and herds, right? And, and so Jacob just wants to circle the wagons. He wants to sit still and he wants to stay put. But what does God do? God comes to him and he says, Jacob, get up and go to Bethel. 
Jacob, get up and go to Bethel. So, so we, can, we can rightly assume that, that this call kind of comes to Jacob in a place where he's not necessarily super excited about it. Uh, there's probably some fear and some concern about what's going to happen to him if he begins to move through the land and exposes himself to danger. Right? He has already told us he's concerned about the Canaanites. And in fact, verse 5 references back, you know, back to that fear that Jacob has. So this call uh, is... Uh, on Jacob is, is a call like many of the calls we have seen throughout the patriarchal narratives. It, it, it's a call that is also a test, right? Uh, think of Abraham. I, in fact, when we hear God say to Jacob, get up and, and go to Bethel, we, we should kind of have our minds drawn back to, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and says to him, get up and leave your family, leave your land, leave your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. I mean, that, that call was a test. Right? And God comes to the patriarchs at certain times and he places these calls on their life that are really tests. Tests of their faithfulness, tests of their trust, tests of their obedience. And I think this is no different. God comes to Jacob in this time, this time when he'd rather stay put and says, get up and go. Now, what's great about Jacob in this moment is that Jacob responds much like Abraham did. Jacob responds in obedience. He gets up and he goes. Just like in Genesis 12, where Abraham got up and went, so here in Genesis 35, Jacob gets up and goes. This call to Bethel <coughs> isn't just to be seen kind of like in reference to Genesis 34, but it's also to be understood as kind of bringing this narrative of, of Jacob full circle. Right, where did the story of Jacob really begin? It really began in Bethel. It began in Bethel as Jacob was running from his family, running from the murderous intentions of his brother, sent on his own to go find a wife in Padan Aram. And on the way up, he has this vision, this encounter with God as he's fleeing from his brother in Bethel. He sees this ladder, angels ascending and descending, and the Lord Almighty standing at the top of it, speaking over Jacob, the promises of Abraham, conferring upon him the blessing of Abraham. And how does Jacob respond? In Genesis, he responds by making a vow to God. Uh, Jeff preached on this text, <coughs> excuse me, Jeff <coughs> preached on this text a while back, but if we look back at Genesis chapter 28, Jacob uh, makes a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and for all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. So in Genesis 28, in Bethel, Jacob makes this vow to God, if God will be with me, if he will keep me, if he will deliver me. Well, what has God done? God has been with him. God has kept him. God has delivered him, right? 20 years of service to Laban, where Laban continually tries to cheat and undermine and, and deceive Jacob. But what does God do? God blesses him. And then as he's getting ready to face his brother with 400 armed men, what does God do? God is with him, and God blesses him. God brings him to in peace to Shechem. And even in the midst of this, in the midst of this, this instance with Shechem, the fear of the murderous intentions of the people, is God still with him? Yes, God is still with him. Because if we look at 35 verse 5, what does it say? As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So as God calls Jacob to go to Bethel to fulfill the vow, he is continually with Jacob as he goes. Now what's interesting here, this is a, a sidebar, as we think about Genesis written in the context of the people moving towards the promised land, uh, what happens as the people move into the promised land later in Joshua? 
Well, as they move into the promised land later in Joshua, a terror falls upon the people, such that as the people are coming into the promised land, a terror falls upon the cities uh, that they go and they go to conquer and they go to uh, overthrow. And so God is, uh, God is continually with Jacob, and this story is being brought full circle. Now, as we move into uh, verses uh, 5 through, or 9 through 15, uh, we see what happens uh, as Jacob goes to Bethel. So Jacob's called to go to Bethel. He gets up, he goes to Bethel, he goes to fulfill his vow to the Lord. And in verses 9 through 15, we see what takes place there in Bethel as he obeys the Lord. It says, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you, shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. So as Jacob gets up and he goes to Bethel and he does what he's told to do, and as he makes an altar and he fulfills his vow and as he worships the Lord, God comes to him. God comes to him, and what does he do? He reaffirms all the promises that he's made. As we look through 9 through 15, all the, all the bits and bobbles of the promise as it had been spoken in Genesis 12 and then reiterated in 15 and 17 and 21 and 22, as it had been reiterated and, 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 and kind of unfolded, right? So progressive revelation as it's been unfolded, all those parts of that promise come together here in 9 through 15. First, God addresses Jacob as Israel. We saw this name change take place earlier in Genesis chapter 32, where as a result of his wrestling match with God, uh, God renames Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but your name shall be Israel. You have striven with God, you have striven with man, and you have succeeded. And so in, in reaffirming this new name, God is again reaffirming his presence and protection over Jacob and over Israel. God then identifies himself as God Almighty, and commands Jacob to be fruitful and multiply. Now this echoes the blessing that Isaac spoke over Jacob earlier in Genesis 28. In Genesis 28 verse 3, we read, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. Then the promise of nations and a company of nations, and of kings coming from his own body. This echoes what we find in Genesis 17, 6, where God declares to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And then lastly, the promise of land has been an ever-present promise since God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And so in bringing together all these various aspects of the promise, this promise that God has made more and more fully known to his people, uh, in bringing it all together and declaring it over Israel, God is firmly establishing the unshakable reality of his promises to Jacob. And these promises, again, as we said earlier in Genesis 12, they form the backbone of all of God's interaction with his people moving throughout the Old Testament. So as, God is getting, so as we're getting ready to have this kind of Jacob narrative brought to an end, God brings all the parts of the promise together and declares them over Jacob, over Israel, establishing the certainty of what he has promised to do. There is no question, there is no doubt as to whether or not God will do what he said he will do. 
Again, thinking about the the narrative of the Old Testament as it moves forward, this makes the sin of the people as they're about to enter the promised land all the more heinous, like all the more unacceptable. Because what they're doing as they stand there on the edge of the promised land and they refuse to go in is they are calling into question the certainty of God's promises. They're calling into question the certainty of God's word. They're essentially saying, we know you said you'll do this, but we're not really sure you'll follow through. And the people in the land look a lot more terrifying than you do. And that sin, that, that sin of rebellion on the edge of the promised land, such that the whole generation dies, is, it's, it's, it's rooted in this. Right? It's rooted in the certainty of God's word. And, and, and Paul says in the New Testament, everything that's been written is written for our instruction. So what instruction can we glean from this? God keeps his word. And he calls us, he commands us, he expects us to rest in the certainty of his word. To not question the certainty of his word. To not doubt the certainty of his word. But rather to lean into it, always leaning into it. And we saw this again beautifully in Jacob. Remember when he, when he prays? When he, when he prays about going to see Esau, he says, I'm going to see my brother. But you said, you said, God, you would do this. You said you would deliver me. You said you would be with me. And what is he doing there? He's leaning into the truth of God's word. You will keep your word. You must keep your word. And so God brings all these promises together, the unshakable certainty of his truth, the unshakable certainty of his promises. And so following this certain declaration, Jacob moves on from Bethel and begins a journey that ultimately ends in Hebron, where he and his brother come together once more, just like Isaac and Ishmael, to bury their father. On the way, uh, Jacob has a, a, another son born to him, Benjamin. Interestingly enough, as we look at this account, uh, here as Rachel's life is fading from her as she gives birth and she calls out, calling the son Ben-Oni, Jacob renames this child. This is the only child of his that he ever named. Remember going back earlier, as, it's, as the sons are born to Jacob, the mothers are naming them. Jacob is taking no part, no ownership, no responsibility in the naming of his sons. But here Jacob takes his son, renames him Benjamin, and his favorite wife dies, giving birth to this son. And then in verse 22, we have what seems to be this kind of odd uh, you don't want to call it a throwaway for, uh, sentence. That's, that's probably not an appropriate term to use when you're talking about the scriptures. But you have this, this weird verse, right? While Israel lived in the land, Reuben, that is his firstborn, went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Well, why are we told this little tidbit of information? Well, well, one, it just reinforces that there are some broken family dynamics in this crowded, confused family. Right? We, we, it's like we, we can't ever escape the reality that this family has problems. And those problems have become more acute and, and more visible as we move forward. Genesis 37. Andrew's going to be preaching Genesis 37. I mean, we know what happens there. Brothers get along famously, right? That's exactly what happens in Genesis 37. It, they hold hands. They watch sheep and sing kumbaya. No! And you've got brothers wanting to murder brothers and selling brothers into slavery. Like, this family has issues, Big issues. And yet this is the lineage, the line, the family that God has determined to work through. Right? Not to, not to emphasize uh, the brokenness of this family, but to emphasize the majesty of his power. Uh, the majesty of his grace. Uh, to, take, to take that which is 
which is wretched, and out of it bring uh, the, glory, the gloriousness of his purposes and plans. Christ, ultimately. But also what, what happens here, I think is there's, there's something really practical happening in verse 22. If we remember, who, who was Reuben? Well, Reuben's the firstborn of Leah. Leah. And what's the relationship between Jacob and Leah? Not great, right? Leah is, the, the, again, the unloved one. She is not the favored one. And what's just happened? Rachel has just died. Rachel, the favored wife, has just passed away. So what is Reuben doing? He's taking steps to ensure that Bilhah does not step up and replace Rachel as the favored one in dad's lineup. So he's going to go and he's going to defile the marriage bed so that he can't point to her and say, that's my favorite now. He's, he's, he, is, he is still, there is still such animosity and frustration and pain caused by Jacob's lack of love and affection for Leah and most likely the offspring of Leah. And so we can't escape, even here as the story is wrapping up, the problems and the results of the sinfulness and the sinful decisions of Jacob within his family. And then we have recorded for us uh, the 12 sons of Jacob who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the story of Jacob closes with him and his brother coming together to bury their father. And so that is Genesis chapter 35. That is how Moses is wrapping up the story of Jacob and the narrative of Jacob in Genesis. And now what I want to do now is just go back to the beginning as we look at this chapter to consider uh, what happens here in the beginning interaction as God is calling Jacob out of the land to go to Bethel. So look back with me at verses 1 through 4 real quickly. It says, and, and God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all their foreign gods that they had and all the rings that were in their ears, and they hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. As we look at these four verses uh, in the, the final stages of the, of the story of Jacob, I think there's two uh, truths that uh, I want to pull out. And if my lack of creativity has ever been more evident, it's about to be super evident here. Uh, if I can't title things, I'm not really good at naming other things. So the two truths that I, uh, that I want to just really emphasize here in a moment are uh, a necessary knowledge of the specific God. Uh, the first is a necessary knowledge of the specific God. I've worded that purposely. And the second is a necessary response. So what do I mean by, what do I mean by necessary knowledge of the specific God? Look at the way that God speaks to Jacob here. Right, God speaks to Jacob and he says, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar. So first, God is specific about where Jacob is supposed to go. Right? He tells Jacob, go to Bethel. It's not go anywhere you want. It's not go 10 miles down the road. It's not like with Abraham in Genesis 12. Go to the land that I will show you. God is specific about where he's supposed to go. Get up and go to Bethel. God is specific about what he's supposed to do. God tells him to go there and to make an altar. So he's supposed to get up, go to Bethel, and make an altar. And then God is specific about for whom this is to be done. He says, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now, when I first read that, maybe it didn't strike you, but when I first read that, I thought, God seems to be like being overly specific here, right? Like, like has Jacob like forgotten who this is that's dealing with them? Like, 
You know, has Jacob, like, is he mistaking him, this God, for someone else? Like, why does God say, go to Bethel to make an altar to the God who appeared to you when you came out of, uh, or when you fled from your brother Esau? Uh, he, he does it, I think, because uh, he is the specific God, right? He, he is the one true and living God. I, I, I think the, the specificity here in 1, verse 1, is necessary uh, given the pagan influence on Jacob's family, right? The pagan heritage of Jacob's family, Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and the pagan surrounding, uh, surroundings in which Jacob's family lives. We looked at, when we looked at Genesis 34, we talked about what does it look like to live as a people of God in and amongst pagan nations. And so God says to Jacob specifically, you are to go and you are to worship no other God other than the God who appeared to you when you came out of, or when you were fleeing from your brother. The God who appeared to you at Bethel when you were fleeing from your brother. So who is that God? Well, let's go back to Genesis chapter 28 real quick. If we go back to Genesis chapter 28, Beginning in verse 10, we, we have the, rec the record of uh, Jacob's dream, that interaction with God there. And in verse 13, God identifies himself. It says, and behold, the Lord stood above it, that's the ladder, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. So the God who appeared to Jacob in Bethel when he was fleeing from his brother is the Lord, the God of of Abraham. Now here we see both of God's most frequently used names show up in verse 13. So first, I am the Lord, capital O, L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the name of God, right? That's the covenantal relational name of God. It first shows up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, where Moses is recounting uh, the creation of man in a more specific and centralized way. And then we also have the God. That's God, that's Elohim, that's Elohe, that's what we saw in Genesis chapter 1, where it says the Lord, or the, uh, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in Genesis chapter 1, right, God's power, his majesty, his sovereignty is on display as he speaks creation into existence. There was nothing, nothing at all, and God, who exists in and of himself, speaks creation into existence. And so this is the God who comes and reveals himself to Jacob. The God who is the creator of all things, the sovereign one over all things, the one who speaks all things into creation, the one who is outside of creation, separate from creation, and yet over all creation. And yet he is also the relational God, right? The God who enters into covenantal relationship with his people, who comes and reveals himself intimately to his people. Right? This is the name that later Moses will encounter as he's at the burning bush, and he says, who shall I say will send me? And he says, say, I am is sending you. I am who I am. Yahweh is sending you. And so this is the God who comes to Jacob, the God of all creation, the Lord over all creation, the God who exists in covenantal relationship with his people, the one true and living God. So why is God being specific with Jacob here in 35.1? Because there is no other God. It's not go back and worship Marduk. It's not go back and worship Molech. It's not go back and worship Asherah. It's not go back and worship Baal. It's go back and worship the one and true living God who has revealed himself to you. And Jacob responds rightly. He understands the assignment, right? Because what does he do? He looks at his family and says, put away all the foreign gods. Right? Remember what Rachel did when she left home? She pocketed some foreign gods. 
right? Little statues that she had, little things that would be set up in the house, visible, little, tangible idols that would be in the home. She pocketed them and she kept them. Laban says, hey, who stole my gods? I think that's, that's humorous. Like, who stole my gods? Like, who wants a god that could be stolen anyway, right? And so Rachel hides gods. And now, up until this point, hasn't been an issue. But now, when God says, get up and go and worship me, the one true and living God, what does he do? He says, put away the foreign gods from among you, for they are not gods. They are no gods. There is one true and living God. So why is God specific? Because God must be known. The one true and living God must be known. Now, what's also brilliant about this, I think, in the specificity of this, is the fact that God even reveals himself. Like the fact that God makes himself known. Like this, this is an honest question here. Do you ever get up and get giddy at the fact that God has made himself known? Like God didn't leave us wandering in the darkness of our sin. He had every single right after the fall of Adam in the garden to say, I'm done. And to leave us like blind people groping in the darkness trying to find him and never finding him. And yet what does he do? He graciously condescends and he makes himself known. He doesn't have to show up on top of a ladder at Bethel to Jacob. He doesn't need to do that. He's under no, he's under no obligation to do that. He willingly does that. He graciously makes himself known to him. He reveals himself to Jacob and he says, Jacob, this is who I am. Know me, worship me, for there is no other God other than me. And of course, God's gracious nature to make himself known, his revelation of himself, the life and light that he gives of revelation culminates in Christ Jesus, right? who is the fullest revelation of the Father. He is the fullest revelation of God. He says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So in seeing Christ and looking at Christ, we can better understand the God of Genesis 28. We can better understand the Father as he reveals himself in Genesis 28, the God who makes himself known the only true and living God. And so why is God specific? God is specific because there is only one God that must be worshiped. Why is God specific? Because Jacob must know this God. Why is God specific? Because we must know this God. There is life in no other God. John 17, three, as Jesus prays, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so the necessary knowledge of the specific God, go to Bethel, make an altar to the God who appeared to you at Bethel when you were fleeing from your brother, for there is no other God. So necessary knowledge and a necessary response. When God reveals himself, when God makes himself known, when God calls, when God speaks, what's the response? The necessary response? Well, we see it in Jacob's actions. It's repentance, obedience, and worship. Now, as Jacob calls on them to put their foreign gods away, we can clearly see that as as an example or as an expression of of repentance, right? Putting off the old, focusing on the new, the true, and the living. But it also mentions that rings uh, in their ears were given to Jacob. And I was reading some commentaries, and it's it's kind of interesting. Um, Jacob calls on the people, his family, to purify themselves, literally to cleanse themselves, to make themselves uh, ceremonially, ceremonially clean. Well, why would they be ceremonially unclean? Well, they would be ceremonially unclean because of what they did in Genesis 34. They shed blood. They murdered a whole entire city of men 
uh, in vengeance over the action of their sisters. So they're, they're unclean. And so Jacob calling on them to purify themselves and them putting away their false gods and their giving up of the rings that were in their ears, I, I think we would be right in part uh, in seeing this, not just in, in reference to what I said earlier, Rachel who takes foreign gods from her father's house, but also in reference to the, the actions of Genesis 34 such that they took booty from the land Right? They, took, they took goods from the land, not just women and children, but they took herds and flocks and goods. And now in, in an act of repentance and an act of purifying themselves, they are giving up those things. They are giving up the goods, the booty, the rings, the foreign gods that they have taken from this land, and they are burying them under a tree. And so in response to God's call, they repent, Jacob and the whole entire family. And then they obey. Right? What does Jacob do? He goes to, uh, to Bethel. He gets up and he actually goes to Bethel. And what does he do in Bethel? He builds an altar, and in building an altar, he worships. And so his obedience is expressed in his repentance and in his worship, his putting away sin and his focusing his attention and his worship on the true Lord. As we think about this, God is calling us to do what? God's not calling us to go to, to Bethel and to build an altar, but God is certainly calling us to worship him, right? He is revealing himself to us. He's making himself known to us through his word. He's declaring who he is. And, and even more so, we have greater revelation than Jacob had. Even though Jacob had these dreams and these visions, we have greater revelation than Jacob because we have Christ Jesus. And so as we look at Christ Jesus, God is making himself known. And what is he calling on us to do? He's calling us to respond in the same way in repentance, obedience, and worship to constantly put aside the sin that so e easily entangles us and to set our eyes on Christ who is the author and perfecter of our faith and to worship him, right? It's, uh, it's October, it's every, everybody's favorite uh, season, every reformed person's favorite season, right? The 95 Theses. I had this idea, I'm gonna get Reese's uh, peanut butter cups and I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna somehow get the 95 Theses on there and I'm gonna hand out 95 Reese's. It, that, that, it sounded better up here than it did when it came out but I'm still going to do it. Our house is going to be known as the house handing out large pieces of paper with a 95 Theses and a Reese's peanut butter cup. But what is, what, is, what is the first of them? The first of them is when our Lord and Savior commanded repentance. It's a lifestyle of repentance, right? We are to be daily repenting. We are to daily be casting aside sin and setting our eyes upon Christ. And what does our worship look like? Does it look like constructing an altar and, and, and burning sacrifices upon an altar? No, Christ is the full and final sacrifice. Hebrews chapter nine, the once for all sacrifice. So what does our worship look like? What does it look like for us to know God, to know who he is, to see him in his fullest revelation and then respond in repentance, obedience and worship? What does it look like? Romans chapter 12. It looks like giving our whole lives to the Lord. It looks like giving up of ourselves. I, I love 11.33 through 12.2. Because when Paul gets to 11.33 in Romans, what's happened? His mind is exploding. Right By the time Paul gets to Romans chapter 11.33, he has expounded the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in great and glorious and wonderful detail, such that when he gets to 11.33, his mind cannot contain the joy of the truth of what God has done in Christ Jesus. And so it explodes. It explodes in doxology. It explodes in this declaration of who God is and his might, his power, his majesty, his sovereignty, his otherness, his holiness, the wonder of who he is, and then it so seamlessly transitions into then, in light of who this God is, in light of what this God has done, in light of the mercies poured out upon us, how do you respond? 
You respond in giving yourselves in worship to the Lord, your whole selves offered over to the Lord. The renewal of your mind, the change and the transformation, the putting aside of sin, the putting to death of sin, and the giving of your whole life to walk in righteousness and holiness. And so we think to ourselves, if God has revealed himself to us, if God has said to us, arise, get up and worship me, are we responding rightly to the revelation of God? God has made himself known. He has expressed who he is. He has shown us who he is, the necessary knowledge of knowing God. But the necessary response is that we respond in obedience and worship to him. So the question is, are we doing what we are called to do? Are we giving ourselves to God in worship? Are we offering up our whole selves to have our minds renewed daily to be known that, that, that we are the Lord's and our lives are lived for his glory, his praise, his honor, and his name. Now, the truth is, no, you're not doing that perfectly. <laughs> right? you're, we're not doing that every day perfectly. Uh, a, a good friend of mine, whom I won't mention so that he doesn't get uh, uh, a big head, said, you know, it's not, it's not about necessarily where you are, but it's about the direction you're going, Right? And so God's called us on, on this, this path uh, to Bethel, so to speak, this path to worship him, to give our whole lives to glorify and to honor him. And the question is, are we doing that? Are we getting up like Jacob got up? Are we walking to Bethel? And are we seeking to glorify and honor the Lord who has graciously made himself known to us, who has graciously revealed himself to us, and who has graciously saved us in his son, Jesus Christ? And it's my prayer that we are doing that. That, 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 that we are walking that road to worship and to glorify the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We praise you and thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have made yourself known. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to walk in obedience to that, to worship you, to honor you, to glorify you, to give our lives as an act of worship to your name, for your glory, and for our good, we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Speak these words of Christ over you, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let us go this week with these words in our hearts and our minds. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship.